So this this particular um, talk is not a highly advanced CT MRI based presentation because the reality is although we do read certain CTs by ourselves and will probably in our practices like head CTs the vast majority of MRIs and other CTs are going to be read by radiology the things you will be held accountable for are plain films those things tend to get uh, not read in such an expeditious fashion and oftentimes even in a uh, malpractice case or whatnot, there's a certain expectation that an emergency physician can read plain films. So most of my focus is on plain films that you cannot miss. So this is essentially based on that, such that if you master these slides, then these are situations that you won't miss um, and may save you some grief down the line. So we're going to start off with some basic stuff. Um, these are actual films. All of these patients were actually seen here at UCI in the subdominal section. These are all UCI patients collected over the years. So none of these were taken from somebody else's file. These are all ours. So somebody like you saw these people real time. Right, so this is a guy that comes in um, basically complaining of severe abdominal pain. Is that film? That's actually film. These are all films, okay? These were done before you know, when the dinosaurs were still roaming the earth. Right? So I had to find, we had, we had a, a very good IT group here, or they actually weren't IT, they were sort of multimedia, but were able to take film and turn it into slides. Now these were originally slides, so I had to take these and then take the slides and turn them into digital stuff. So these things have gone through several iterations, so some of the resolutions not quite what it would be had they been digital to start with, but they still have the teaching points in, in there. This couple of them are very hard to find, so because they were ours, uh, I elected to stay with them. All right, so this gentleman comes in with the severe abdominal pain. This is the flat plate. Uh, now, <clears throat> normally in, in acute abdominal surgery, you get a flat plate and what else? An upright, okay? Now, what if they're too sick to stand up? What do you get? You get a left lateral decubitus. Why not a right lateral decubitus? Yes, the liver's on the right. Very good. So what? <laughs> right, the liver makes a very nice sort of dense area to contrast free air. So what you're looking for when they can't stand up is free air, which would be under the diaphragm, but since they can't stand up, it would be on the top of the liver. If you put them on the, with the right side down, the spleen's not so great at that. And with all the bowel gas, you can miss free air. So you want them on the left side down so that you can outline the air over the dome of the liver, which you will see. All right, so this is their left lateral decube. All right, so um, what do you see uh, in these two pictures? Anybody want to take a shot at this? What do you think of the diameter of these bowel loops? Right, they're they're large. Okay, they're they're large. They're, they're large bowel loops. Now you see both sides of the bowel wall here. What do you think about that? What are the two reasons you see both? Now remember, you know the bowel has gas on one side and not gas on the other. So should you see both sides of the bowel wall normally? No. So there are two reasons you would see both sides of the bowel wall. One is very bad, and one is not so bad. Air in the bowel wall, no, you won't see the other side. You'll see, you'll still just see one side. But why would you see both sides of the bowel wall? Well, one, nope, not ischemic. One is if you have two loops of air-filled bowel juxtaposed next to each other. And so the two bowel walls silhouette each other out. Remember the silhouette sign? Things of like density tend to obliterate boundaries between them. And so you have a bowel loop here and a bowel loop here. And this is actually both bowel walls put together. And so what you're really seeing, the reason you're seeing what looks like both sides of the bowel wall, you're really only seeing one side of each bowel wall. You're seeing the inside of this one and the inside of this one, but because of the silhouette sign, you put the two together and the middle part disappears and it looks like you're seeing the inside and the outside. So what you're really seeing is just two bowel loops stuck together. The other one is free air, and that's the bad one. So we, we, don't, we, we doubt that this is free air. We think this is just bowel loops stuck against each other. But it's dilated, um, and they're, they're, uh, on the flat plate, you can definitely see uh, what look like abnormally large bowel. On, on this view, what do we see? Multiple air fluid levels all over the place. Okay. So 
Putting this all together, this is probably a right bowel obstruction. Could it be an ileus? Possibly, but generally speaking, the difference between an ileus and a small and a bowel obstruction is that the ileus tends not to have as dilated loops, so that it's, you don't see massive bowel loop dilatation. And usually, you'll see air sometimes in various parts of the bowel. Uh, and so you can see it doesn't look to be a, there's an obstruction, but there's a substantial overlap. So an early bowel obstruction and an ileus look identical. So you can't always be sure what you're looking at. But when you get this far down the line, this is probably consistent with a bowel obstruction. All right, so any questions about that? Okay, moving on to the next one. This is a gentleman from Fairview. Anybody know what Fairview is? <laughs> we don't see them anymore, but from... Well, some of the Mike Burns definitely knows about them. This is this is a a, um, a gentleman. This is severely uh, mentally retarded uh, people who are so um, developmentally damaged that they really can't be managed at home anymore. Uh, and so a very advanced person at Fairview may be able to feed themselves, uh, and that's really uh, the level. That none of them can really talk. They're very very d uh, damaged uh, as far as their brains are concerned. And so they tend to do weird things, like eat things. And they'll eat anything that isn't tied down. We've seen in the past come in with car antennas, salt shakers. As if you remember some of the earlier slides I've showed you, knives, they'll swallow. So they swallow a lot of things. And so they end up with a lot of bowel injuries and a lot of surgeries. And so this is one of those kind of guys who's been operated on multiple times for first swallowing things and then the associated uh, bowel injuries that have come along. And, and he comes in again with abdominal pain and vomiting. And so this is um, his uh, <coughs> flat plate. So what do you see? A lot of air fluid levels. Okay. So could be ileus, could be obstruction. All right. yeah, air fluid levels here, here, here. Hard to say if they're really dilated loops or not. Might be here. That one might be a little wide. But still hard to know. But given his past medical history, probably a bowel, pending bowel obstruction. There's one other thing going on in this guy that's really important to pick up. And it's subtle, but <coughs> you, you, you can't miss it. <coughs> Excuse me. Is that air in the bowel wall? What do you think that is? That's right. That's air in the bowel wall. Notice the fluid up here. Well, air rises above fluid, like up here. So why is there air down here? Because it's stuck. What's it stuck in the bowel wall? So this person has probably ischemic bowel. Now, there's one other finding you can look for. If you think somebody actually has dying bowel and has already air in the bowel wall, where else might you look for the air? And I'll give you a clue, not free air. Well, that would be easy. No, it's not that, and I'll give you that. Where else might you see it? Okay. Ah, uh, uh, what was that? In the biliary tree. In the biliary tree. Interesting thought. Why would that be? Well, where where does the what does the biliary tree drain? The gallbladder and the So it's probably not necessarily the biliary tree. But you're really close. The portal. Ah, the portal. Ah, the portal. Well, why would you see air in the portal in the portal veins of the liver? Because the portal veins drain the bowel wall. Okay, so if you have air in here and you have vessels that go from here to here, you might see air in the bowel or in the in the portal system. So if you what, what if we took a look up in here, up in the liver, and looked at the portal system? This is a globe. What what do we see there? Oh, air. Air. Right, air in the portal system. So, you don't need a CT scan. This guy needs to go to the OR, directly to the OR. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. Go to the OR. And he did. And as miraculously, you may think this guy's already got dead bowel, he's going to die. It is very, these, these, these people from Fairview are very robust. In spite of how sick you think they are, they don't die. <laughs> And sure enough, even with dead bowel and air in the portal system, he lived. He survived and probably is, a, is dead now, but, but at that time, went back to Fairview as a satisfied customer. To return another day. To return another day, exactly. All right, so moving along. All right, this is a gal that comes in. 
complaining of bilateral flank and abdominal pain. And there is something on this that's a little bit interesting. It's subtle, as this is many findings, but that's what we have to be good at is picking up some of these subtle findings. Okay, let's say that she's not vomiting, is tolerating PO as well, but has blood in her urine. Bilateral? Boy, she would really be unlucky. Is there anything you see here that tells you what the organ system might be besides what I just told you? Is there some finding in here? Although we don't do this, generally speaking, sometimes you back into it. You can, um, we'll get to that in a minute, but you can't see a stone in this, but you can see sort of these large, what look like maybe kidneys, but kind of big, and they're bilateral. So now, because in, in the old days, we didn't have a device that would allow us to evaluate this, but today, what would you do now? You saw this film, let's say we thought we were ruling out free air, and lo and behold, we see that and go, hmm. So. Get the ultrasound, right, and what would you do? You'd look at the kidneys, and what would you find? Large kidneys, okay, large kidneys. Um, so, it, it probably you'd also make the diagnosis without the following study, but this is the study that we ended up doing. And as rarely as, that she has bilateral obstruction of both kidneys. So today, you could probably do this with an ultrasound. But there is something very valuable about the IVP to keep in the back of your, of your, of your uh, armamentarium. Normally, when the CT scan is working, generally speaking, this diagnosis can be made without an IVP. Obviously, it can be made with ultrasound or with this non-con CT. Um, but periodically, because we've become so dependent on technology, we still need a plan B. And for those individuals who are working, I think, is it uh, the 14th? No. VC, um, when are you working when the CT scan is going down? Uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow. It is tomorrow. Okay. Oh, nice. All right. So tomorrow, from 8 to 12, we have the usual CT maintenance, which means they take it down for four hours. If this gal comes in at 8 o'clock, what are you going to do? You're not going to get a CT scan. Now, I know we have other CT scanners there, but you, you, you would have to do something else. Now, you might, the ultrasound would probably be sufficient. But every once in a while, it's nice to have this in your back pocket because I'm going to show you another case in a minute that it's likely that the CT scan would not make the diagnosis. And so it's nice to, to, to have, be able to read one of these things. So essentially what this is, you see these are dilated. This is uh, um, hydronephrosis with dilated calyces. What do you see going all the way down on both sides? The ureters, right? What do you think is kind of remarkable about this? Do you see the ureter all the way down? Yes. And in the bladder. Yeah. You can see the ureters basically from the bladder all the way up. Is that normal? No. If I did an IVP on you, what would I see? I would see bits of ureter and then no bits of ureter. And bits of ureter and no bits of ureter. And why is that? Because of peristalsis. The ureter is just like the gut. It squeezes. And so you get bits of peristalsis, bits of dilatation, bits of peristalsis, bits of dilatation. So when you get a normal IVP, you'll see contrast here and then space, contrast, and space. When this is all the way up and down like that, that's called colonization, and that is due to the fact you've lost peristalsis, which implies strongly that there is disease. Because, and usually it's a stone, usually obstruction. And she ended up having bilateral, hard to believe, but bilateral UVJ stones causing high-grade hydro on both sides. But this is something to keep in mind because sometimes you get a case that looks like this. This is a gentleman, doesn't speak English, comes from Mexico, grew up in Mexico. Said he's had multiple infections in his life, doesn't know what they were. Had weight loss for a while and resolved. Had a bad cough, resolved. And now has really bad left flank pain. And you get this. Okay. So what do you see? Lots of calcifications, right? Okay, which one's the stone? Is any of them a stone? You get a CT urogram. What's it going to show? Lots of calcifications. Maybe some in the ureter, maybe not. Clinical correlation required. <laughs> so the CT scan doesn't definitively tell you is any of these kidney stones. What might else they be? 
uh, could be, but more likely post-inflammatory retroperitoneal lymph nodes. Some of them in the area of the ureter, which may make it hard to know for sure if things in the ureter are not. Okay. This guy has a lot of pain, though, and no blood in his urine. So you get the CT scan, it's non-diagnostic, and so reluctantly you dust off your old memories and you get an IVP. And what do you see? Oh, my. <coughs> I'll give you a clue, it's right here. Yes. And why is that? He perfed his ureter. Okay. Now, the CT scan would have some trouble interpreting this, but the IVP is diagnostic. So, there still is, again, probably once, maybe every three or four years, but this is useful. And, and you'll need to, the radiologists probably won't know enough to suggest this to you. Urologists probably will. They still will do this. I don't know. Usually <coughs> once a year, I'll get a request from a urologist to order an IVP for something strange like this. But, so these are some of the things that you can do as a physician that, that you may do. And I have, when I've moonlit in the past, I've run across a couple <coughs> of cases like this where the CT scan would not have helped. Okay. So. This is an elderly gentleman, lives in a nursing home, comes in complaining of abdominal pain. This is his flat plate. This is his upright. Oh my, that's impressive. So this is the flat plate. And don't worry about this. Oh, what's that? No, no, who cares? Do something, doctor, he's, he's dying. It almost looks like a volume. Yeah. Can you go back to the, yeah, the other picture? It looks like a volume. Yeah, it looks like a volume. Okay. If he's probably 78. Okay. Is, okay, well, let's, let's, if this were a volvulus, what would you do about it? I know, call surgery. Yeah. What, what, what are they going to do about it? If, given the guy's probably a poor surgical candidate at this point. Either endoscopy or more like oh, a sigmoidoscopy yeah, uh, could conceivably decompress this. Right. Now, you have a 50-50 chance of guessing what kind of volvulus this is. So for $10,000 in trip to Europe, is this a sigmoid volvulus or is this a sequel volvulus? And why? <coughs> Oops, wrong patient. Okay. Flat plate? It looks like it's a sigmoid. By age, it should be sigmoid. Yeah. Okay. That would be a sequel. Okay. Well, it, 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 playing the odds, you would call this a sigmoid volvulus. Mm -hmm. But you'd be wrong. Because looking at the film, right? Looking at the film, this is a sequel volvulus. And the way you do it is you look for what they call the, the parrot beak or the bird. It doesn't look like a beak to me at all, but that's what they call it. It's where it twists. Mm -hmm. So what you can see is along here, there doesn't appear to be any point of fixation. But right here, there looks like clear point of fixation. And it's on the right side where the cecum normally is. So this would be a cecal volvulus. Even though, unfortunately, he did not read the book. And he should have had a sigmoid volvulus. He didn't. Uh, and don't worry about this. I have no idea what that is. It had nothing to do with why he was there. So this is a, a, a cecal volvulus. And the acute treatment in this situation would not have been a sigmoidoscopy because it would not have helped. So unfortunately, this guy had to go to the OR. Uh, and he survived, although not for long, but not because of this, because of the cause for this. Now, why did he have a sequel of ovules? Very common. Why did, why did they get this? Colon cancer. Mm. cancer. It mm. caused the ovules. So that was his story. And that's typically, they, the, 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 the take-home message is, is volvulus give you very large valves with very large air fluid levels. Usually, this is, some of these are like really rare. This is a fairly consistent picture of what a volvulus would look like. Very large bowel, large air fluid level. Okay. This is um, sort of an intern kind of case. This is a guy that comes in, excuse me, it's a gal, excuse me. It's a gal that comes in with uh, pretty severe abdominal pain. Um, looks like even might even be peritonitic. Um, this is her flat plate, uh, or her, and this is her KUB. 
Um, now, I will save you the grief because you can't see anything on either one of these two films. And there's a reason for that. Um, because what's missing? Remember, it looks peritoneal, severe abdominal pain, flat plate, looks pretty good, upright, KUV, I don't see anything. What's missing? That's what's missing, the chest x-ray. You've got to see the diaphragms. You've got to see the diaphragms. Because of the free air that's located underneath them. So this is somebody that came in with a perth viscous. Um, and initially a flat plate and upright was ordered, but what they said is flat plate and KUV. Now a lot of times it's like, what difference does it make? Generally speaking, it should. The text should do the right thing anyway, but sometimes they don't. If you get a KUV, they focus, uh, put the kidneys at the top, and the bladder at the bottom. That's what KUB stands for, kidneys, urine, and bladder. So they're not interested necessarily in picking up the diaphragm, which is what we really care about. So you want a flat plate abdomen and a flat plate upright abdomen. You don't want a KUB, although we call it KUB all the time. Be advised that technically speaking, the difference between the two is they lower where they shoot. They're putting the kidneys at the top and the bladder at the bottom. For an abdominal film, you oftentimes miss the bladder. We don't care about the bladder. We care about the diaphragm. So if you're only going to get two views, get flat plate and upright abdomens, or if you want to be make sure you get everything, just get the chest x-ray, which is what most of us do. We get a three view. Chest x-ray, flat plate, upright. Then we don't have to worry about it. And then you'll pick up the free air of the diaphragm. So Carl? Yeah. Um, CT's down. You're not sure maybe there's a little air there or not. Um, you want to make real sure. What are your thoughts about putting an MG tube down? Gosh, I, I couldn't have paid you to ask that question better than yes, you do. That's perfect. Let us take that question and let us morph into the next case. Okay. Okay, this is a gentleman that comes in complaining of um, severe abdominal pain, has a history of peptic ulcer disease, has a, has a fever, has a white count, he's peritonitic. This is his upright film. CT scanner is down. Do you see anything? No. No. You don't. There's nothing there to see. Hmm. Frustrating. Well, what about putting an NG tube down and putting some air into the stomach? So here's the NG, there's the air. Do you see anything? No. Looking very carefully, there's just no free air. However, given the fact that the CAT scanner is still down and you are not to be fooled, what do you do next? You can get the supine, it's negative, everything is negative. There is no free air. I will give you that even if you got a CT, which you didn't, but if you did, there is no free air in the abdomen. And I'm, this is to make a point. Again, this is a guy that actually rolled into RED, and we went down this pathway. We did not screw the pooch, but we came close, but we did not. We did this. We still got nothing. We were so convinced this guy had a perf, we did one more thing. We put some contrast on the NG tube. There's the NG tube. There's the contrast going through his bone. You see anything there? It looks a little bit... There's some extra contrast. That's not supposed to be there. It's going up over the over the liver there. It's like, what the? It's got a perforation. He went to the OR, he had a perforation, and they fixed it. So, just because they don't have free air doesn't mean they don't have a perforation. And even if you put the tube down and blow air into it, you still may not see it. You cannot call it a day that they are still that possible. Now, today, with the CT scan, generally speaking, this won't happen. But even if you get the CT scan, they, you should probably see some excess uh, free fluid in the abdomen. But you might not see any air. And in this situation, sure enough, this guy's got extravasation of contrast. So if, if these things can be difficult to put. But that's what it looks like. If you ever did see contrast extravasation, that's the kind of stuff you would see. On the previous film, Next to the spine, like below the heart on the left side, there's like a little triangle shape. That's not right here. No. No. Mm -hmm. no free air. Now, there's one other thing you could do, which we didn't do in this case. 
you can get a lateral. Sometimes the lateral can be actually more sensitive than the AP. And the air can get stuck sort of <coughs> below the dome. It gets stuck like at this level. But when you, when you do the lateral, you can see it. You can see air under the diaphragm. It just doesn't rise to the top. Because for some reason, there's an adhesion between the, either the stomach uh, or, the, or the liver and the diaphragm. And so the air gets trapped. Um, but had we done that, it wouldn't make a difference in this case. Okay, next case. Uh, this is a gentleman that comes in. He's got rheumatoid arthritis. Um, he's complaining of some very vague minivagastric pain. No nausea, no vomiting, just bothering him. He's on 5 milligrams of prednisone a day. Um, he has no fever. He has no white count. Um, and his vital signs are all stable. He looks well. Just complaining of persistent abdominal pain, epigastric, more so than he's had in the past. talked about a couple of slides ago <coughs> about the bowel wall. <coughs> you, shouldn't you shouldn't see both sides. Now, do you see both sides of the bowel wall here? You see it a lot. Yeah, you could buy one or two maybe, like maybe over here as being just bowel on top of bowel, but boy, it's all over the place. I mean, look, this looks like an air contrast barium enema. I mean, what the hell's going on here? Anybody have any ideas? How about now? What's that? Air. air. This guy had massive, massive free air in his abdomen. And the reason you would suspect that is because you, there's so much of the bowel wall you can see. This would really be hard, especially this one right here, this flexion one. That's really hard to find the, uh, another loop of bowel that's up against it all the way around. Up here, maybe, but not down here. You can see the bowel wall all over the place. That makes you very suspicious that there's air in the abdomen. And then when you get, obviously, the uh, upright chest, you can see it. Now, the, the issue that I'm making is, is that when you're on immunosuppressives, people can look really good and have really bad things going on with them. This is a guy that did not have a fever, did not have a white count, did not have an abnormal, uh, he was not hypotensive, was not, did not have peritonitis. He had a massive perforation, and that's the immunosuppressive power of steroids. So if someone's on 5 to 10 milligrams of steroids a day, we may not think that's much, but it's enough in the right case to really suppress out their immune system. And so here's somebody that has a very bad situation. If it were you or I, we'd probably be uh, clearly a peritonitis if not being in shock, and it looks like a rose. All right, and those are all the abdominal films that I have, and that's a half an hour. So um, should I just do continue to go on some other stuff? Okay. So I'm going, this is the part of the lecture I usually don't get to because the first part usually ties up all the time. So I'm just going to keep going on this stuff. Okay. Um, anybody have an idea of what this is? Uh, uh, as as I, I shouldn't have said that. Can anyone identify the pathology in this film? Thank you. What is it? Early step to now. C1. Well, let's do the lines. It's a little hard to do from this angle. But, okay, does this line sort of look like it lines up? Yeah. Soft tissue look okay? Yeah. This line looks like it lines up? Yeah. And does this line look, oh, well, not exactly. Hmm. This line doesn't quite line up here. There's a little gaposis here. I was in a high-speed car accident, hit from behind, hyperextension of his neck. Yeah. Ding! Absolutely. This is a Hangman's fracture, so it looks like on the lateral. You pick that up because this segment is displaced posteriorly, so the line doesn't quite line up. This is shoved back a little bit. We've got a CT scan here, and there it is. Right the pedicles of C2. So that is a Hangman's fracture.
can't remember the mechanism of injury of this guy. I think it was a car accident, but it's, it's a long time ago, I'm not sure. Uh, this was actually the case at UCI that changed our practice. So this is going back probably, let's see, what is it? Uh, almost 25 to 30 years. Anybody see anything on the lateral? C3. Okay, we've got to vote for C3. Anybody else? Well, let's go ahead again. Soft tissue look okay? Yeah, looks pretty decent. Lines line up? Looks okay. Lines up there, okay. And okay there. So, all the lines line up. This looks like a normal C spot. And it actually was read initially as a normal C spot. But this is the open So burst fracture, where's the pathology? What do you see that looks is this oops? Is this the abnormal side or is this the abnormal side? <coughs> okay, so you look at the screen, your right or your left, which is abnormal? You have fifty fifty chance. Your left? Buzz. That's the abnormal side. This is what it's supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like a, um, a rectangle on both sides. I don't have a normal one to look at. But it's supposed to be squared off of both. This looks like a goose egg. It's not round. The C1 through the open mouth should not be round. It should be squared off. And it, as soon as you go and you'll see one, you know, we get CTs so many times, nobody knows how to read these anymore. But they should be this sort of uh, rectangular shape on both sides. And this thing is completely round, so there's something that's happened on this side. But, you know, when all else failed, get a CT scan, and sure enough, it's pulverized. Okay. So this is a Jefferson fracture, first fracture of C1, with a normal CT scan. And after this, after this particular case, we stopped clearing C-spines on the lateral. And from then on, for the rest of eternity, that, that practice went away. Now, the literature, again, you know, how many years, by the way, how many, how many years does, does the practice of medicine lag behind Clear, absolute evidence is established in practice. Anybody know? Ten. Good guess. It's about 12 years. It's about 12 years. Hard to believe, but if you look at a lot of established clinical practice from the time they've been established as with evidence-based investigation, at the time they become part of what everybody does, it's about 12 years. Sometimes a little bit less, um, but that was the standard practice. So we were still, even though there was a lot of debate and discussion, a lot of evidence that using the lateral to clear C-spines is probably not such a good idea, we still were doing it. Uh, and this is the case that finally said, okay, that's it, we're done. Now, now this became the practice at UCI. Okay. <clears throat> what do you see here? I'll give you a clue. This is not trauma. Okay, so don't think trauma. Oh, I have a really sore throat. I'm not hoarse. My voice is normal. It just really hurts when I swallow. And, I, and you look in his mouth and you don't see anything. Is he tripoding? He is not tripoding. Well, retropharyngeal abscess would be an excellent guess, except here's the retropharynx, and I don't see anything. So it's not a retropharyngeal abscess. But we are now getting warmer. What? What? I heard it. What? Yeah. What's the thumb sign? That's right. This is the epiglottis right here. It's not supposed to look like that. It looks like a thumb. It's supposed to look like a fingernail. So there's something wrong here. What about here? What's this here? What are these? And why do you see them? Those are the arytenoids, and you're not supposed to see them. But you do because they're so swollen. So this guy has epiglottitis. It is an adult disease. This is what it looks like. You will be seeing these if you look for them. In the kids, we generally not to do that because they look so sick, they just went to the OR. But in adults, they tend not to. Most adults actually don't require intubation. Um, they just require antibiotics. They probably should be in the ICU um, with an airway at the bedside. But the vast majority of adults who have epiglottitis will respond they still give them steroids. I don't know that there's strong evidence for that, but most people do. Steroids and antibiotics, and they usually do pretty well. 
Okay, and this is the guy a couple of days after treatment, and you can see the arytenoids are starting to disappear. They're a little less visible here because they're getting less edematous. And the epiglottis, now you can see the molecular very clearly. So the epiglottis is getting smaller. So he was never intubated. He did well with just um, medical management. What's this? <coughs> Now, where was that other diagnosis that came up? <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to ask you, what would we see? <laughs> and this, anybody, what is, want to take a guess at what this might be? It's like C6 transverse process is all jacked up. Um, it is, but that's not, <laughs> <laughs> that's not what's killing this person. <laughs> Retropharyngeal abscess, okay. Look at the size of the soft tissue. Oh, my God. It's the soft tissue that ate New York. I mean, it's just massive. <laughs> So th this is somebody um, who was immunocompromised and had a mass. Usually retropharyngeal abscesses are more traditionally diseases of children because they have a lot of lymphoid tissue in the retropharyngeal area. And so they get seeded with bacteria and they form abscesses. Adults, you know, your lymphoid tissue tends to atrophy as, long as, as, well, as well as your tonsils. So these kind of things are less likely. But they still can occur, especially in immunocompromised individuals, and uh, that's, that's what this is here. All right, uh, we're now returning to trauma again, and I apologize for this, but I'm just gonna go through this because I think it's a little bit easier to make the point. Um, uh, this is an individual that has a C6 on C7 fracture, and the original film uh, did not show it because of the fat plane that sort of covered up that uh, transition point. So as we know, well, you have to see C7 and T1, and this is why, because they oftentimes will do this and of course, this person did read the book and knew they'd be just fat enough to block that. And so had they basically had a three-view C-spine and been cleared, we would have been in a world of hurt. So you gotta see that, and if you don't, um, you need a CT scan. Now, a lot of times, we think, we get CT scans on people who we think might be seriously ill, but a lot of times, when we think they're probably not seriously ill, we get a, a three-view C-spine and call it a day, which is okay. But if you're gonna do that, you gotta make sure you see C7 and T1. Uh, and that's why. Okay. Well, what is this? Midline shift. Okay. <coughs> What's this? Cancer? Subdural. Why? Because it looks like a subdural. I know that. What? When you say it looks like a subdural, what are you actually talking about? If you want to teach somebody, what is the shape, but that's not always the best plane. The shape of a sort of um, concave, like a crescent moon, possibly. But there's a couple other things that are useful to know about subdurals that help you make this diagnosis. It doesn't cross sutra lines? It, pardon? It doesn't cross sutra lines? Uh, oh, yeah, sorry. It does cross sutra lines. Subdurals can be huge. They are underneath the dura. Why can they cross suture lines? Because they're under the dura. And where is the, what is adhesed to the suture lines? The dura. So if you're on top of the dura, you bump into those adhesions. But if you're underneath the dura, you slide by. And so you can get very large collections of blood underneath the dura. So the second thing is it's large. Epidurals tend to be smaller because they're blocked by the, where the dura adheres to the suture lines but subdurals can be massive. Now why is there midline shift? This is a venous bleed. It's like eight millimeters of pressure. What's the big deal? Why do we see midline shift with a venous bleed? Because it's so big. It's massive. It's not just in this slice, but it covers almost the entire convexity of the brain. And when you take up that much space in a very confined space, like inside the skull, you get shift. So it's not the pressure that makes these people shift. It's the volume. Okay. What's this? Subdural. Again, same thing. Crosses suture lines, very large, lenticular shape, midline shift. How about this? Still a subdural, right, exactly. Huge. Right, right. Now, fortunately, this, these guys, this is an old person, and they got big ventricles, so they got a lot of room to squish. But <coughs> they, 
they can, the subdurals cause a lot of, of shift because of their size, not because of their pressure. And if you want to know what one looks like, this is somebody with an actual in surgical specimen, you can see there's, here's the dura, okay, and here's this something underneath the dura. You can see it's almost this blueness staring back at you. There's the brain right there. And when you open it up, there it is, big clot sitting there. Yuck. And what is this? That's an epidural. That's an epidural. Why? The shape looks more like a lens. It is under pressure, so it has more of a lenticular shape. It tends to be smaller because it's, it's, uh, it bumps up against the suture lines. And here, there's subtle midline shift, but not much. And what's this? <coughs> Why? Because you're seeing blood in the, collecting in the near the cella, and that that's uh, often looks like a contrast study. If you think, if you look at it at a, at a CT scan and you see something that looks like a con, like oh, it looked like that a contrast scan, but. Not because you know sometimes you think about the, the various blood vessels that feed in. It's actually not. It's, it's blood. It's a subarachnoid. Okay. Let's see. All right. It's a quarter up. Do you want me to keep going? Yeah, for maybe another <coughs> five or ten more minutes. So okay. you got plenty of time. I'm gonna three hours of order to be after this. So. Okay. So let me go. Hmm? Can you back up to the um, <laughs> subdural for a second? I got a question. Oh. Uh, uh, because it looks like the brain here is starting to maybe be um, you know, starting to regress, maybe becoming a trophic, say, okay, that's an old brain. Yeah, actually, if you look at this here as well, look at the size of the ventricle. I mean, it's huge. Yeah. This plus this, this would, you would say that either this person has severe, severe uh, dementia or they're old. And on the other one, um, same thing where the ventricles weren't so big. I guess we're going to have two extremities next. All right, let's see. Okay. All right, so um, for the next 15 minutes, we'll just go through a bunch of stuff. I think some of these you're probably pretty good at by now because we beat on you so much about this, but probably if we do, we'll just go through them very quickly. <coughs> All right, this is uh, an individual who was riding a uh, skateboard and fell on an outstretched hand. This is the uh, AP or PA, that's the lateral. So, 
What do you see? Repair lunate. Okay, so why is that? Because this thing looks kind of funky. Normally, the lunate should have more of a um, squared off look. This definitely has a very unusual appearance. When you look over here, you can see, in fact, that the capitate is not in the cup of the lunate. All right, so is this a lunate dislocation or a perilunate dislocation? Okay, and why why is it a perilunate? Okay, and why do you care? In terms of your management, that's a very good answer. <laughs> but what in terms of your management? What's the issue? This is a perilunate dislocation. What... What is the issue? Why do you care? I mean, I, I'm not going to, I mean, other than, than roundsmanship, what's the difference? Why do you care whether it's a perilunate or a lunate? Call ortho, right? Well, what, well let's normally, with a lot of these things, what you can do is you can splint them. You call the orthopedic surgeon and you say, I've got this guy, I'm going to send him to your office the next day, and they go, fine. You know, it's three in the morning, they're asleep. Can you do that? No, no, not with this one. Well, actually, with this one, you could. It's a perilunate dislocation. It's the lunate dislocation that there's a problem. Why? That's the issue. A perilunate dislocation is not associated with a vascular necrosis. A lunate dislocation is associated with a vascular necrosis. So the lunate dislocation is in much more tenuous blood supply, and those people need to get seen right away. It's worth it to drag the orthopedic surgeon out of bed to get them in for that. Perilunate is not as critical because there's less of a risk of avascular necrosis. So that's why you need to know that. Is there anything else going on with this guy? Obviously. Oh, you asked the question, so there must be. This is frequently an associated finding with perilunate dislocation. So you always want to make sure you look for this. and you, Because testing for this will usually give you a positive result because of the lunate dislocation. So you have to look for this. No. It's on the film. What is, oops, I'm out of gas here. What's this? It's a fracture through the waist of the navicular, or the scaphoid, depending on your So this person, in addition to having a perilunate dislocation, has a fracture of the scaphoid. So, um, the, and the reason this happens is because you read the book, and most, many people with perilunate or lunate dislocations will also have a fracture of the navicular. So, if you see one, look for the other. Okay. Anybody, guy fell uh, on a hand and sort of had a uh, forced uh, abduction of the thumb? Same thing here. Let me give you a close-up. Okay. Uh, this is the big one. This is the little one. What do you see? I'll give you a clue. It's not a dislocation. Where would the pathology be if this were a gamekeeper's thumb? First of all, the gamekeeper's thumb a fracture? No, it's not. Right. Of what? What joint? This joint. Yeah. That's a gamekeeper's thumb. That's right up here. Okay, that is the dislocation between the proximal phalanx and the metacarpal. The first metacarpal and the first and the proximal phalanx. Right up here. That's a gamekeeper's thumb. It's a tear of the ligament. Okay. What's going on? What's this thing down here? This is the pathology. We get a close-up of it. It's right here. What's this thing? It's an emulsion fracture. Better known as? Drum roll. Bennett's fracture. This is a Bennett's fracture. Okay, so big deal. So it's a Bennett's fracture. So what? Why do I have to do anything about it? Okay, you can do this. This is a closed reduction. Um, this, they bring down the, the intern from, from uh, ortho, and they do this, and they say, okay, I'm done. Send him home. 
What's the problem with this? This thing hasn't budged, all right? There's no reduction here. The guy's in plaster, but nothing's happened. Okay. What happens if you send this person home and six weeks later they show up in Orthoclin? The Ortho people are not going to be happy. Because right, what happens is if you don't do the right thing with this, this thing eventually atrophies and you lose the ability to stabilize the thumb. Now you will have a completely unstable thumb. It will flop in the breeze for the rest of your life. You will not do this person a favor. So the question is, what is the management of this particular problem? Here's your clue. It's surgical. This almost always has to be pinned. How does this happen? Generally speaking, somebody catches their thumb and has an avulsion type injury, um, or a, a sometimes it can be a compression type injury. But it's usually some sort of extraction. Uh, that that s skiing is a good one, right? Which one? Isn't similar to Rolando's, right? But Rolando's fracture is worse. Um, I can't tell you if it's worse or not. Um, but this is this is the one that uh, we are. We, we want to make sure that again, you can split them and send them home as long as there's follow up in a couple of days. But this thing generally will not heal. The ligament is so strong that it, it, it's actually more, uh, has a greater tensile strength than the bone, and that's why you get the avulsion fracture. And you can't get that piece of bone back on uh, because uh, of, of the way the, um, the tension works within the hand. And you will end up with a, with, a, with a healed fragment that is not attached to the thumb, and the thumb will remain unstable. So you have to literally take a pin and take that bone fragment and pin it back in place, and then it'll heal, and then the thumb will be stabilized. So with the Bennett's fracture, it is essentially a surgically managed, you can't manage it closed, you have to take it and do something with it. Alright. <clears throat> this is a guy whose hand comes in, his hand is really swollen. He says, I was holding a 2 by 4 and um, uh, I smashed it up against uh, a pole. His whole hand is swollen. And the point of this is, is why you need a lateral film. I'm not giving you a lateral film to, to make the point. <laughs> it's sort of, I mean, when I show you the lateral, it's, it's like, oh my God. And yet, you look at these two films, and it's, it, it's not, there's the lateral. Oh my God, yeah. So he's dislocated metacarpals two, three, four, and five. Really, really right. Right. He was. Well, it turned out he didn't tell us the whole story. He was actually sitting in the front seat of a car, passenger side, holding the two by four with his arm out the window. And they went around the corner. The thing caught the the, the pole and just ripped his hand back. And that's how he got this. What an idiot. Right. Anyway, so the point is, the lateral view makes this diagnosis very dramatic. But if you look at the PA. And even the oblique, it's like, you get a sense that there's something not quite right there, but it doesn't strike you necessarily what's, what's going on here. Did you just pull on all those and they'll snap right back in there? Uh, I don't know exactly how they pulled on them. Yes, they will go back in. They got them back in. But, and I wasn't around for when they did that. Um, but yes, um, they, they, I don't know how you reduce that, but they did. But the, the point of this whole x-ray is why you need at least an AP and a lateral of any bone. And if you just have an AP and oblique, you're going to miss things. So on those trauma patients, oftentimes, you know, they'll, they'll show you an AP and a sort of an oblique view and say, wasn't oh, that good enough? And the answer is no. All right, so that's the... All right, so the arrow signs, if you couldn't figure it out, which Italian is this? <laughs> Okay, what is a Montasia fracture? Fracture of the ulna with dislocation of the head of the radius, right? How do you know the radial head is dislocated? Yes, because the arrow is pointing to it. I know that. But let's say the arrow weren't pointing to it. How would you, and plus the fact it's like, there's the distal, right? But if you, if you draw a line down the middle of the radius, it should intersect the capitula, right? right? And it doesn't, so. Right, okay, so yeah, a little off on that one. How about this one? A little harder to tell on this one. 
Right. Yeah, this is an ulna fracture. Um, harder to tell if there's a dislocation at the head of the radius. Even if you draw the line down, you, it's hard to say. But this is a kid's film. But this is something you would strongly suspect might be uh, a montation fracture. But sometimes there's obvious something. It's like so low. Pardon? Is that the Capitone? Why is it the Capitone? I mean, why is it the Capitone? That's the Capitone, right. Why is it so Because it's broken. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes it's hard to know if you drop the, 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 the But in any case, um, it makes the, 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 some are more subtle than others, but they're, you can, you would, with this kind of fracture in a kid and this thing down, you would suspect that maybe the radial head is not exactly articulating where it's supposed to. Okay. All right, and here's one that's a little bit more obvious. You don't see the fracture part, but if you draw, again you draw the line down, it's pretty clear this is not articulating where it's supposed to be. And then the slide that actually makes the point: if you couldn't quite get it, there's the fracture of the ulna, there's the dislocation of the radius. Okay, so that's the Italians. <coughs> What's going on here? Fracture here? Well, let's see. Yes, you got a fat pad sign back here. So you got a posterior fat pad sign. So you know something's wrong with this guy. But, is there, why? There is a supercondral fracture here. Why? Oh, we're not in Las Vegas. <laughs> We're not, well, well, we do actually engage in statistical probability all the time. In fact, there is evidence on this fund that you can, with certainty, make a diagnosis. There's one other finding or one other sign that you can, you got a posterior fat bed sign, that's very good. Odds are this is a supercondral fracture, and I would agree with you, but there's one other thing that makes the diagnosis. If you draw a line down the anterior aspect, it hits in the anterior third of the capitellum, and it's supposed to hit in the middle. So the capitellum has been shoved backwards. Now, if you don't believe me, here's the comparison view. But you don't need a comparison view, okay? This is, this is actually the same film. So you can compare the two and say, oh yeah, this doesn't look like that. But if you draw a line down the anterior aspect of the humerus, it, it lands in the, in the anterior third of the capitellum, which is wrong. So you now know definitively that this is a supracondylar fracture. Now here's an adult that comes in, and he's got a big swollen elbow, but it's not clear what happened. Every once in a while you get one of these freak things where you'll see sort of a posterior fat pad sign. You know that there's some derangement that happened to this guy's elbow, and it's really swollen. Something happened, and he said he, like, he fell on his elbow, and felt a pop, and then he pulled it back in. <clears throat> and although, because he came in after this happened, we can't do it, we can't take an x-ray beforehand, we do have other people that have come in with a similar process that where it didn't pop back in. This is what they actually have. This is a elbow dislocation. Okay, so that's what. So sometimes what will happen is if something pops back in place, you won't see the actual pathology, but you'll see the telltale signs. You'll see the massive swelling and the fat pad sign. So it's really reasonable to, to believe that and treat accordingly. Assume the worst. That there's either a fracture or some dislocation that's occurred whether you can see it or not, it's probably there, and you should treat it as though it were. Is there a crack to the electronaut? <coughs> Pardon? Go, is there some kind of like crack to the electronaut? If you go back to the other film, it looks like the electronaut doesn't look nice and smooth on the posterior end of it. This was not read that way, okay. but uh, that doesn't mean that uh, they don't miss things. Um, I don't see anything on these views, and there's another view here as well. <laughs> But you can see when you, you will, and these are, by the way, these are things that have to be relocated. You can't, you can't send this home. Okay. You've, got, you've, got an you've got an artery that goes across here, uh, and you know, you're, you're putting pressure on it, and you, this thing's got to be relocated. But so you can see how it gets stuck and why, you know, any of here, anybody here actually reduced one of these things? I, I've done a couple of them, and, and, and it's remarkably difficult. If you do it under ketamine, it works pretty well. But um, you, it's, it's not a simple procedure. Uh, usually aren't in, uh, I have done these in a 70-year-old under ketamine, but most of them um, are younger and they're kind of well-muscled, and it's 
tough to get this thing in. And you can see because this thing gets hung up uh, on the uh, very proximal end of the ulna, and you've got to get around that to get it back in. And so a fair amount of grunting and groaning is necessary uh, to get these in. But you do need to because of the uh, brachial artery, which is being tethered as we speak uh, by this dislocation, and that has to be fixed. So before you touch them, though, you want to document whether you can feel a pulse or not, so that if you, if you don't feel a pulse, and then you relocate it, and you still don't feel a pulse, you realize it's not because you did it. <laughs> if you do feel a pulse, and after you put it back in, you don't, you have a problem. Okay, so you really want to document the vascular status before and after you do these things. Okay. That's kind of a good rule for everything. Right, right. But this is one in particular because one of the one of the complications of reducing an elbow dislocation is entrapment of the radial artery, of the uh, brachial artery. So you really want to make sure that if there's no pulse afterwards, that there was no pulse before either. Then the gal, the 70 year old, that's what happened. She came in, she had no pulse. We put it back in, she still had no pulse, but she had a compartment syndrome, so she went off to the OR. But we knew that we didn't entrap the thing. It was, it was due to the compartment syndrome which had developed. All right, and it is now 1 o'clock, so I'm going to quit here. Uh, and thank you all for your attention. All right, guys, let's take a five-minute break while we set up the doctor. All right. Thank you. So, let's see you give me back. Mm-hmm.